Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Welcome to the last episode of 2019. And strangely enough, two years ago in December, I interviewed Jilly Bond. We had done an episode on the wand and trigger points. If you have not listened to that one, please go back and listen to her. She is such a fabulous speaker. We have been chatting um, for a while about doing another podcast and I've asked her to come back today to talk about bladder pain syndrome or interstitial cystitis. Why are we calling it two things? What exactly is it? What can we do about it? How much does our nervous system and our brain have to do with it? How much does our pelvic floor have to do with it? And Jilly is one of those beautiful people that you can just sit back and listen to. And um, she is such a wealth of knowledge. And sometimes listening to her, you know, you kind of, well, at least I feel like, oh my God, (laughs) you're so smart. I want to know everything that you know. If you have not checked out her website, she I will put the links in the show notes. She has such amazing videos and information for patients, for professionals, and soon she will have some online courses. I'm really excited for that. So I hope everybody enjoys the last episode of the year, um, and thank you everybody for listening. If you want to support the podcast, you can share it on social media. You can rate, review, and subscribe on any podcast listening device. I'm pretty sure you can rate on other devices, but I definitely know you can do it on the Apple Podcast app. There is the patron side where I put out extra episodes. If um, you want to become a patron, you can head over to podbean.com, look for the Pelvic Health Podcast, or the link will be in the show notes. There's a little Become a Patron button that you can click and you can donate or pledge money to support the podcast, one or two US dollars a month. Or people can do, if there's too much um, craziness with the exchange rates, you can do $25 for the year. It just means if you do pledge $25, it will charge you $25 a month if you don't cancel it before the next month. Um, And if you do that, you go into a Dropbox account. So you get all of the special patron-only episodes as a holiday special. The episode for 2019 that should come out on December 20th. I am talking about my first paper. (laughs) So exciting. Um, But anyway, today's about Jilly. So enjoy the episode and thanks so much again, everyone. Bladder pain syndrome, interstitial cystitis. We have touched on here and there in some podcasts because there's a lot of podcasts on pain, Uh, but we never touched on it specifically what it is. You know, you know, they're 
there's even controversy about the definition. Um, there's so much I would like to discuss just more on that specific topic. And then you've just gone to this um, really cool conference and have got even more information, which you already had. So I don't understand how you can learn anything because you already know it all. I would love to start with the definition, like what, what exactly is BPSIC and why I know that would actually be a whole podcast on why we can't just call it one of those things. Wow. <laughs> Even what we're talking about. So what is it? Yeah. What are we talking about? Um, so we're talking about the situation in which someone experiences pain anywhere around their pelvis or underneath their pelvis, but very commonly um, in their bladder or um, between their legs. And that pain gets worse when they need a wee, when they, need, when they hold their urine in, and it gets better when they release their urine. Um, and depending on the guidelines that you listen to, that's, that has to have been present for anywhere between six weeks and six months. Um, so the, the main thing is pain, um, for more than six months, increased pain, um, with, uh, deferment as we call it, released with voiding. Um, and it tends to be con concurrent with a feeling like they need to go all the time or urgency or frequency. Um, so increased trips to the toilet more than they would feel is normal for them. Um, now, depending on which guidelines you look at, and unfortunately, um, they're all very, very different. I mean, those, those three key factors tend to be the same all over the world. That's how we all define it. But then depending on who you talk to, that includes um, whether or not they have the presence of Hunter's ulcers, which are kind of like ulcers you'd have in your mouth, but in the bladder. Um, and we've had a bit of a regressive step in the UK regarding that recently. So in the UK, the British Medical Association, um, BMJ, last year, 20, end of 2018, came out and said, actually, we're going we're gonna to change our definition. Um, so they have, well, we're kind of, we're not changed, we're all updating, we're trying to kind of get on top of it, because no one really understands that the science isn't there yet. Um, but from our best understanding, the, the British are saying, I see interstitial cystitis is when there are Hunter's ulcers present in the bladder lining and they can be painful and they weep um, and they get scar tissue around them and that is their view of what interstitial cystitis is and bladder pain syndrome is much more of a complex threat state or complex pain state um, which has all the same um, symptoms but it just doesn't have the Hunter's ulcers on cystoscopy so when they have a camera um, and pretty much everywhere in the world is following that ish but most um, European nations um, and the Americans, and I think the Australians, lump it into one and call it IC slash BPS, which frustratingly was um, it, the reason that name came around. Because we use the word term interstitial cystitis for many, many years um, to describe the symptoms of being in pain and even the toilet all the time. Um, and it moved over to bladder pain syndrome with the British around about 10 years ago when they decided they needed a better umbrella term to discuss what was going on um, and the americans call it painful bladder syndrome and there was a big issue internationally to try and get us all to talk about the same thing mostly for what we in research called mesh terms so that when we're searching that we can all find the same information about the same thing so we can talk to each other about it and so there was a decision to call it bladder pain syndrome which I always find it easy to remember because in physio and in medicine we look at the biopsychosocial framework BPS so we call it BPS um, and it was so we called it IC slash BPS as a transitional name towards bladder pain syndrome however 
and that was going to be for five years. However, it's kind of become common parlance to call it IC slash BPS. And I think that is almost the name itself has, has modified how we're thinking about it. Um, so instead of looking at um, this as a chronic pain state, which is incredibly multifactorial, um, unfortunately, the conference I've just been at, which is um, ESSIC, which is the European Society for the Study of Bladder Pain Syndrome, um, we're, it was very biomedical. So there was, there was a big move afoot to kind of discuss IC as a Hunter's ulcer lesion kind of issue. And the problem that we have with that, and that, that wasn't really discussed very much this week, this last week, is we have two key pieces of information which don't necessarily disprove, but really muddy the waters in, in what we understand this condition to be. And the first is that we find Hunter's ulcers in people without pain. Um, and there are quite a few studies, I mean, there's at least four that I can think of, um, where they've taken a look at um, normal bladders of people without pain and found Hunter's lesions. And they've taken pictures of um, people who are in remission from bladder pain syndrome um, or IC, and they also have active Hunter's lesions. So there's no doubt that if you prod a Hunter's lesion, it hurts, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what's causing this condition. And the second thing we know is that um, conversely, if the pelvic floor of someone with these symptoms of rushing to the toilet all the time, lots of pain, um, getting it slightly easier for a brief period of time when they have a wee, if their pelvic floor is still painful, they won't make progress. And that's across the board. So again, that muddies the waters in saying, well, is it something to do with the pelvic floor? And again, I don't like to, to, call, um, to discuss the pelvic floor as a source of pain. I like to say it's another symptom of what we like to think about as smudging or central, central sensitization of pain within the pelvis. But those two key pieces of information weren't really effectively discussed this weekend. We had a lot of the urologists saying, interstitial cystitis is about Hunter's lesions let's talk about 15 different ways we can we can burn the lesions away and people feel better and no doubt they feel better um and we had a little bit of an mdt chat which i would feel is more concurrent with where we are in world congress um which is by far the, the world congress in abdominal pelvic pain is by far the most progressive um conference i've been to and i've been to the last two um and that the, so the MDT discussions around catastrophization and central sensitization and a much more of a biopsychosocial model um, were there, but their voices were quite quiet. So I think we're in this interesting no man's land where the the definite what we define as the condition um, really depends on your uh, profession, <laughs> if that makes sense. It does make a lot of sense, and I I I don't know. Is it because um, surgeons and some doctors who specialize in that area, urologists, that they don't, I don't know how much training do they have in the biopsychosocial side of things. Like they're trained to find something and see it and fix it, right? Yeah. And, and you know, it's that whole, if you've got a surgical hammer, you're cracking that with surgery. Yeah. Um, there was, uh, so Bert Messelink stood up who, um, we're a massive fan. <laughs> Carolyn and I gave him a um, standing ovation because he stood up, he's a urologist and a sexologist from um, Holland. And he stood up and basically um, discussed Neu group work on the neuromatrix and pain theory and um, uh, predictive processing and return, you know, and, and he was, these are all concepts that I think if you're embedded in the pain world, which we are, um, then they make sense to you and it would it would make total sense that you're never going to have a single driver of a persistent mm. pain state um 
but he would he would talk and they all kind of there, there was no recognition <laughs> there was no understanding of that so the the conversation I think amongst many of us um, there were how do we get better into professional learning and development so that we can understand it because unfortunately that day three of the conference had the patient advocacy um, session which was beautiful and it was really lovely to see kind of there were about four or five different national organizations there and seeing what they're doing and how they're interacting and the consultants that they are good friends with that were there and had invited them um, and less than half the conference stayed for that and that was really frustrating and it was the same with the MDT I mean in the small physio session I think there are about four or five consultants but it was mostly physios talking to physios and what I think is really really important is we get out there and we we start discussing because I you know I learned lots about surgical technique this weekend um, and I'm you know very interested in what the surgeons are doing and it helps me to understand better for my patients but it would be quite nice to have the opposite um, and have a real open discourse about viewpoint but I'm yeah I hope I hope we're still able to debate in this stage it does feel somewhat nationally internationally that we're we're getting worse at debating um, yeah. our viewpoints yeah it's hard I mean that's the whole point of conferences is to get well at least multidisciplinary conferences is to get everyone together so that we can collaborate but when yeah certain professions leave and don't stay and they don't get the information and then you think okay well how do I reach them I will send letters so that they know what we're doing with patients they don't read the letters half the times and sometimes it's not until the patients especially the ones that don't get better with the surgical technique that they've done yet you've communicated mm -hmm. through some letters and they start to get better because they've been seeing you and then sometimes I find that's when the doctors take note and they're like oh what are you doing that's helping this person and then they're like oh there's another part to it I don't just have to cut this piece of their body off yeah yeah so you know there was a conversation about a um, vestibulectomy um, at the conference um, which is uh, where Laurie is hanging head in shame. Um, there is where uh, part of the vagina is cut, well, vulva is cut away. And I don't ever see that in the UK. I don't think Carolyn Van Dyken, who was sat with me, sees it in Canada. But there are some European nations that are doing that still. Um, and it's it speaks to a very, um, a, a much older view of pain in within the tissues. And yeah, so I think I've come away a little bit frustrated from this last conference. Um, there is more work to do, to do as always, um, but that is our job to keep getting out there and, and spreading the word and hopefully this will help um, because interstitial cystitis bladder pain syndrome, and I prefer to call it bladder pain syndrome because mm. I have an issue with words. Words are important to me, Laurie. I have many, yeah. many chats about how important different words are. Um, but interstitial cystitis, break it down. It's a cystitis, an inflammation of the interstitium of the bladder. And we know that's not what is happening. We, we know there is some inflammation. There is some upregulation of the bladder lining. Um, do you want me to get technical? Yes, so please. So our, uh, our TRPV1 receptors within the bladder lining become upregulated. We have um, increased C-fiber firing. Um, the actual... Um, the layer of the lining, the, the bladder, the lining, the um, becomes much more inflamed, and uh, the gag layer, as we call it, so um, gets gets kind of broken down, and we get these areas where it's porous, and urine can get through, and urine becomes cytotoxic. So we know that is occurring, and that is a chronic inflammatory um, state. Now that chronic inflammation is locally driven by neuroinflammation, and neuroinflammation is driven by a chronic 
centralized threat state. So we, we have stuff happening at the level of the bladder, these lining stuff. We also get changes in the pelvic floor because the brain upregulates activity of the pelvic floor. And unfortunately, we know that when it's chronic for a long period of time, that pelvic floor becomes um, so uh, overactive, it, it, it has a little bit of what we call a um, autonomic neuropathy. So the nerves and the blood vessels don't work as they usually would. That means it's difficult to get rid of um, fluid within the area. So it can become a bit boggy, it can become a bit overstimulated. We know the nerves become super, super, super sensitive um, and possibly fire when they don't need to. And that itself perpetuates um, because any time that you load it with stool or with urine, it's going to um, shout about it. But we also know from a central point of view, we have a huge amount of research now going on via the MAP research network that if you're a pain nerd or want to know more, definitely read some of that work um, about centralized processing changes. So changes in our detection of threat, our perception of threat and our perception of what needs to go on. The brain is always trying to heal the body and trying to keep us alive. And if a situation occurs for a period of time, it will adapt to allow um, the best outcome from that situation. So if it's noted there is an issue downstairs, it will adapt in what I like to call the software. So your software gets switched on to being much more aware of your bladder, feeling or perceiving the bladder is much more full than it actually is. And patients will tell you this. I, you know, I have to wee every 20 minutes. It's excruciatingly full, but I only wee 50 mils. Um, and it'll turn up your pelvic floor and turn up all or kind of your sensations around that area. And also it ties into your limbic system. So we know that the software gets changed and suddenly your emotional center starts driving your pain state and starts looking after it. So now your emotion is tied in with your pain. So you have a bad day, your pain gets worse, your pain gets worse, your mood reduces and it's self-perpetuating. So we get another, you know, these are the patients that sit in front of us, absolutely miserable. Um, suicide rate in IC is huge. So we, there was very little discussion of this. I mean, we had an update from MAP. Quentin Clemens came and gave us a MAP update, which was brilliant. I managed to grab him for dinner um, and talk to him lots. Um, and they're doing some fantastic work, but there was very little discussion of what, what do we do with, with that? And there is so much that we can do with that. And I think when we are so reductionist that we say, oh, there is an ulcer in the bladder, and that is why all of these things are happening. Mm. Um, and, and reductionist with our tissue approaches, we, we miss um, the nuanced art that is physio and nursing and OT with these patients. Um, and that, that really is something I want to shout about because like you say, this is why we get people better and we get people better because we, we help their limbic system as well as, you know, the processing around their pelvis as well as the functional outcome of their bladder. Um, so can you talk us through that a little bit more in terms of how you or how physios can help, especially, so I would still like to talk about the pelvic floor side of things, and, but mm -hmm. also uh, I'm just trying to think of where, where to start. Well, um, it's not all about pelvic floor. <laughs> well, no, and that's why I was like, hmm, th that's a portion of it. And you've said there's, there's that portion of it. And I feel like there's lots of physios when they think about bladder pain syndrome or IC that that's where they go immediately. They know there's yeah. this centrally stuff happening, right? But they kind of almost ignore it and go straight to the pelvic floor because there's changes in there as well. Um, but yeah, maybe if we can start with the most important part, which is again, 
all of the stuff that's happening and the central mediated um, uh, changes in information. So what do you do? <laughs> How do we help people? <laughs> So if there's somebody people. comes to you, I mean, and you said like it's the definitions anywhere from six weeks to six, six months, months and onwards are women who I think it's, or at least I have not seen many people who come in at six weeks. No, no. It's, it's average seven years. So it. Average is seven years before diagnosis. So these yeah. people have had pain for a long time. Yeah. So where do you start with them? Um, so I, the, I've just done Carolyn Van Dyken's, um, uh, what's it called biopsychosocial model course which was excellent I think she puts into terms much better than I do yeah. um, about where you start in that uh, we have good measures for looking at the software changes as I like yeah. to call them so you know you, you start by giving them a million and seven outcome measures because I love outcome measures not to show the outcome but just to make sure that we're on the same path and we're, we're driving forward so I'll give them a million outcome measures because also my research in this area so I give everyone um, the ICIP, the ICPI, ICSI, ICPI, um, so Symptom and Problem Index, um, the Genital Urinary Pain Index, the Pelvic Urgency Frequency Score, so the PUF, and a Likert score that was originally Anderson. Um, and then I'll also make sure I central sensitization index everyone. I'll look at their anxiety, depression, and stress scores on the DAS. I look at their PANAS. You do go all out with your outcome measures. I do. Um, I give, but again, it's it's the situation I'm in like you is I see 80% pain. And if I can give a patient a pack and say, please tell me everything that you want to tell me. And I will look at this in detail once we've spoken, but it allows that first interaction that you have with someone to go as well as it can. And what I found in the NHS when I was limited by time and by mm. boxes is that you are asking people questions that aren't necessarily relative or important to them. Yeah. But you're asking questions that are important to your clinical reasoning. And actually, that first interaction needs to be put your pen down, get your body, body. Um, uh, we talk a lot about body language. If you get your body language right, you sit down with that person and say, tell me why you're here and you don't interrupt. Mm. So I, I get them to tell me everything and it doesn't take long. You know, it's five or seven minutes that they continuously talk and then you ask them to continue telling you all the things. And what you'll gain from that is the important things to them and where to target your treatment day one and where you can move through things. Um, it's much more of a psychologically informed care. So I think I, I'm really, really passionate that I think we should all be doing psychologically informed and trauma informed care in this area. We know that 30%, um, oh, there's a, a greater likelihood of patients in this area having significant trauma because we've, we've not really talked to why it starts, but we don't know why it starts apart from the fact that something happens to them. And that could be trauma abuse. It could be recurrent urine infections that aren't treated. There could be an embedded infection. Um, whether or not that's important, we don't know. Um, a lot of them that I see are post-surgical as well, or post even um, postnatal. Some people that have had catheters postnatal for retention and then um, so there's lots of different reasons. So you've got to listen to them. And when you've listened to them, they tell you why to get better, you know, how they need to get better, what you need to do. Um, so I do a million outcome measures and then I will talk to them. Um, <laughs> uh, one of my colleagues calls it my woo. Um, but we, you, you find a way together uh, how to move forward. If they've had pain for a significant period of time, I will also have an attempt at measuring that software change. Um, and this is where uh, experience and exploration meets evidence. So there are many of us all over the world that are trying to work out a way of 
standardizing an approach to things like their their graded exposure response or their imagery response um, to know whether we need to move forward now um, I'm making it up um, based on evidence I'm kind of doing plausible um, what does Sandy call it laws of plausible anatomy or something I can't remember um, but I if someone's had pain for a long period of time and is very emotional when I first see them and listen to them what I'll do is sit them in front of a laptop and I have a presentation where I get them to look at left and right pictures of people um, dancing on Strictly Come Dancing so they're quite challenging images um, I was going to ask the, you about the GMI so thank you yeah, <laughs> for going there okay. um, so I, I know we, I don't think we can do laterality in the pelvis um, yeah. so I'm not looking even though I'm getting them to judge laterality um, what I'm looking at is their autonomic response so what is their nervous system and their brain telling me and them how is it talking to us in response to even just looking at a picture of a pelvis and some of those pelvises you know are covered in leotards so it's a bit more exposing and they're very complex images so it's a bit of a quicker way into seeing who's struggling and who's not so I do that one um, I I do time them because um, I think Noi Group have done a lot of work on that I don't strictly measure it but I measure it because it's good data to capture and uh, we can we can show a progression and sometimes patients find that really valuable if we've trained it. Um, the next thing I'll do is I put them in front of a presentation of very cartoon based pelvic images that start very, very simple. We all know those and they get harder. And um, the idea of that is uh, there's a list i give them a list of things to find because most people don't know anatomy and then all of the images are labeled and they basically just have to find the parts and they could just choose to look at the words if they want but the images are there and i say to them you can find anywhere you want to and anywhere you don't want to find you don't have to find and what i'm what i do is i judge and i do film these with patient consent i delete them or i keep them for teaching purposes afterwards but um depending on the patient's wishes but um, I film them so that I can go back with them and say, can you see that you didn't find any parts there to do with the back passage on any of those images? Or can you see that actually labelling the uterus was something that you found really easy, but actually the clitoris was difficult? Is that, does that reflect how you feel about that area? Um, just simple ways in to get someone to, to look at objectively how they are around that area without having to touch them, having to cause yeah. them pain, having to explore it so having to think about their own body just it's almost yeah. something else someone else yeah simple simple so that's that's my kind of um uh objective measures of object uh, of graded imagery and exposure where do we start and from that i have several presentations if they've struggled with those i give them that as homework to go away with and they yeah. work on that and that you know the everyone's on a scale my, my spectrum goes from a lady i saw with 46 year history of pelvic pain um I know, following um, a forceps delivery, and she was in her 60s. And she couldn't look at her granddaughter's pelvis. She couldn't change a nappy. Oh. Um, she couldn't see a vulva because it made her feel sick. I couldn't show her my plastic pelvic model because it made her feel sick. And I was able to say, well, that makes sense to me. That validate, I, I, know, I know what's happening there. Your autonomic nervous system is yeah. protecting you incredibly well. And she thought she was making it up. She thought she was all sorts of shame- um, there that she she pushed on herself and we did this work um it's uh, and we did it over about nine months and i think about six months in i assessed her for the first time i touched her three times there were just two therapeutic assessments and the third time was her popping back into clinic to say 
I've been swimming and I've done this and I've done that. Can you just check that my prolapse isn't coming down? Because obviously she was referred with a prolapse, not with a 46 year history of pain. Um, and I, you know, there was no treatment there um, physically. It was all around discussion around how she felt around the pelvis, about exposing her to images, to sitting, to doing exercise. And she's now completely pain free. Oh, that's, and that's wonderful. Back to normal intercourse, you know, she'd never been yeah. able to have intercourse with her husband and enjoy it. And now she's absolutely fine. So that's one end of the spectrum. And everyone's on that spectrum somewhere. And I think yeah. we have to find ways to objectively test it. And if mm. anyone's got any better, way, better ways, tell me. Um, we're all kind of working on how do we do that to look at software changes. Um, but I find that doing it with images, it's unexpected and incredibly validating. So the, the third section of my little head assessment um, is I when they finish I always instruct them to stop and keep looking at the blank screen and I film them from behind and I just ask them questions how do how do you feel now how did it feel looking at the images um, how do you feel in your body and I have those um, I have those responses videoed and um, if they allow me to keep them or, or demonstrate them I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago and I uh, presented some of them and that you know the ranges from people that are clearly fine you know, a couple of chats that were like, yeah, I feel fine. Yeah, just it was a bit boring. Yeah, it's fine. To then people that um, have appeared to be okay with the testing and then are engulfed with emotion. And again, it's, it's a nice way of kind of showing, well, what is your brain telling me and you in response to these images? Is this somewhere we need to start? And if they're fine, well, then I crack on with other stuff. But if they're not, then I spend a lot more time looking at these images and doing more graded exposure with vision work so if they're not okay what do you what where do you go next um i have uh in the way that all physio departments and most physios are quite happy to get their kit off um i've got photos of the whole of my team um with shorts on uh we call them vanilla images so they're very simple posed images of people sitting or striding or squatting and they're in all different directions. So I, I've got a pres couple of presentations, just PowerPoint that I send to patients to look at until um, they, with the instruction that you can click through them. But if that feeling rises within you, which whatever the feeling is that we've discussed that they found, so they, they you know, they're more aware, they feel the heart racing, they feel dry mouthed, whatever it is, they stop. Because what we're doing is we're training the autonomic nervous system to not respond with threat um, mm. to thinking about something and they do that they do that they do that and I say get back in touch with me when you can do the whole presentation and it's really boring um and they do and then I move them on to more complex images um and sometimes you don't have to do that you can do complex straight away but it's just working out with the patients so yeah complex images around you can get them on on free online um, nice photography of people holding hands and walking or skating or surfing or upside down and just get them to look at whether it's the left or the right of the pelvis so we're doing laterality but not for true laterality testing it's yeah. more graded exposure um yeah. and again do that until they don't feel um, autonomically wound up at which point they come back in and we might start them with some mirror if it's appropriate um i don't stick uh specifically to the noi group um uh, their, their kind of linear model of how you progress patients through this so i might do some mirror work i might do some self-touch but mirror maybe, work with their vulva yeah yeah so getting them to propriocept getting them to um have a bit more of an embodied experience yeah a lot of people have switched off and it's an area of pain 
Um, so I, instead of just mirror work for, well, to begin with, it will be making sure that they're okay looking at it. Yeah. Because a lot of people have a very different view. Yeah. The Great Wall of Vagina is fantastic for showing people that vaginas or vulvas look all different. Mm. Um, but getting them to have a bit more of an embodied experience and also pleasure hunting. So can, can we make this area that is really painful? Can we make it have a different sensation? And, and some people are comfortable with that and some people aren't. But even if it's just with touch, um, yeah. can they be sens- sensible of a touch? And we start doing that kind of work. Um, some people need more of this, some people less. It's a very, this is the problem with BPS, the problem with pelvic pain is that we don't have a recipe. Oops, sorry. We, we don't have a recipe. We just have a, um, a, a big old bucket of tools and everyone needs a bit more um, time on one area or another. But yeah, so some mirror work for a period of time. Some yeah. people don't do any mirror, but if you pick up on um, shame or fear, or even catastrophization. So um, if your PCS score is high, catastrophization um, is really well addressed with education um, and that can come in many forms. And I think in physio, we're very good now at doing the pain chat, Um, Mm. but not everyone needs the pain chat. And actually forcing that upon them as the only psychological treatment we do um, is not necessarily helpful. Um, Everyone should have some awareness of it probably, but more so if they're catastrophizing because then mm. we need to help them understand so mirror work's really good for that so yeah. from a bladder pain perspective what kind of things would people complain about if they're catastrophizing what makes you go "Ooh, we need to talk about this oh gosh anything um i i take any limiter to someone's life that they've self-imposed and break it down and if it's i would ne- you know i never pres- tell people well that's ridiculous but you know, say someone is saying, well, I, um, I have to go to the toilet every 20 minutes, so I can't leave the house. You know, that's pretty big. Normally by this point, they've been in my office for half an hour, if not 40 minutes, at which point I'll point out, well, you've, you've done pretty well. I mean, I know the toilet's next door, but you haven't been to the toilet yet with me. What do you think it is different around sitting here with me? Oh, well, I went before I came in. Great. But that was 40 minutes ago. Um, the people the people change behavior legitimately and i think the biggest thing in any pelvic pain that we need to any pelvic pain work that we need to be doing is legitimizing and um, validating people's experience so if someone is not leaving the house because they can't go to the toilet the last thing we're going to say is well that's ridiculous we're going to say okay that's that's an appropriate response to how you are feeling Let's see if we can work on ways together that we can look at things that are important to you. Is leaving the house important to you? No. Great. Okay. Well, what is important to you? Human connection. Right. How can we do human connection that is within your safe space? And what do you have created? Can we do that online? Can we do that with friends coming around? Can we join a, um, you know, there are, there are book groups. Can you make one work from your house? Because then you can go to the toilet every 10 minutes. Um, I think physios, our role is in problem solving and OTs actually is in this kind of functional lifestyle problem solving is more beneficial than we know because it's these kind of things, the the unspoken, um, unmeasured elements of the psycho and social of the biopsychosocial model, which make a huge difference because if we can tap into someone's limbic system, 
as well as all our physical treatments, if we can limbically reduce their, their um, overactivity, so we're not driving a depression, anxiety, stress, whatever else state, we give them some few moments of limbic calmness and at the same time give them a novel experience and empower them or you know inspire them to do things you find that they progress and i think the treatments where we fail people are where we go in just with a biomedical model and we say right you've got bps i'm going to make sure your pelvic floor feels great i'm going to look at your voiding diary and we're going to try and do some bladder drill which is more effective than bladder retraining but just as a note for everyone out there and taryn hallam pointed this out to me last year um, that in all of our NICE guidance internationally and Cochrane reviews, they talk about bladder retraining. But if you look at their methodology, what they mean is bladder drill. Mm, yeah. So we know bladder drill is more effective. We can do all of those things. But the minute that you do that and you don't ask someone, well, how are you? What is important to you in your life? Um, what does better mean? What does cured mean? What does that look like? How can we move towards those states of being? You aren't going to make change. Um, and I've definitely, it, it's a hard lesson to make. And there are many, many patients that I failed that I feel miserable about <laughs> over the years. But the, the more that we embrace a psychologically informed, you know, process, and that comes right down to little things in any, any bit of pelvic floor. So, you know, can you, great, pelvic floor exercises, they do them, they're going to cure your incontinence. Great. When, where do you think that would fit in your day? When, when do you feel like, is this something that you feel you're going to be able to do right now? And if they say no, and no, well, I'm really busy and I've got this and I've got that and I've got that. The, the physio within you wants to go, well, this is important. You must make time for it. Um, but it's not important to them at this moment. Now, I've had many conversations where I've said to people, OK, well, you know, your daughter's about to give birth and you're, you, you've got your house to be painted. That's very important. So is it, is it that we need to kind of take a pause on this and maybe you want to get back in touch with me in six months? And they've gone, yeah, that's great. And then they come back in six months when they feel more able to do it or they don't. And that's their choice. And we are not, um, we are not beholden to making everyone in the world better. We are here mm -hmm. as facilitators of people's change, not responsible for creating that healing. Um, and we, we need to bring that to everything that we do. So in, in, especially in pain, you need to bring the whole of yourself, um, shelve your ego, shelve your, your desire to be an effective physio and be a good human and listen to that person in front of you. Oh, that's beautiful. Be a human. <laughs> and that's what you think. How, how, how come that's so hard to do sometimes? Or, and I mean, I actually think it was Taryn Hallam at one of her research conferences that she's like, we all try to do that. And sometimes you catch us at a bad day on a bad yeah. time or a bad year and you see those patients who have seen other people and sometimes they've done all of the things that you think how did you miss that why did you only do that why didn't you address anything else what about the biopsychosocial side you only did the physical side or and you just kind of go this is where you know as a profession we're supposed to support each other and hmm. sometimes you are still learning or you've yeah. just had a bad day and what you probably would have done just didn't happen at that time. Yeah. There's many reasons why we're not able to do that. And I don't think it's bred. Um, I think the Australian physios, certainly that I've, I've worked with or known, seem to be a little bit more cued into this. But I think your understanding baseline of pain theory is better. Um, but there's many reasons why we're, we're, we're stopped. So my 
my default at the moment, I think how I approach all pain patients, actually all patients, it's not just pain patients, even though 80% of my day is pain, Hmm. um, is to start with a psychosocial. So if someone walks into my office and they've been referred with prolapse, I will sit and listen to them. I'll do the same approach. I'm interested in what they're telling me, how they're telling me it, and what the meaning is behind that much more than the objective data. The objective data will come because I'm going to give them a bladder diary to go and fill out. And um, from everything we talked about, I can fill in, you know, we can get more objective. But in that first session, you need to meet their soul a little bit. You need to say, what makes you tick? Why are you here? What is, you know, because to go and see someone about your vagina is a big deal. Hmm. So it's you, if you can hit that in the first session, look at the psychosocial first and then build a way forward. Um, that's, those are the patients that, you know, you've got it right because they come back next session, you've done nothing with them and you're feeling like a bad physio because you haven't recorded anything, um, apart from your chat and they come back in, they go, you know what? I feel so much better. You know, I talking to you last time made me feel amazing. And I, when I was in an NHS in a very structured situation in which our time was limited and I, um, was very pushed and, and certainly there were very paternalistic kind of, um, you should work in this way. This is what we expect. Um, These are the boxes, tick them with someone. Um, I found very quickly that I couldn't do that and get any change because those patients, if I went, okay, how many times are you going? Right. And what's, and how does it feel when you go? Great. And are you emptying fully? And can you do a pelvic floor and let me contract? It didn't, those patients didn't come back. (laughs) Whereas the ones I just gave up with the, the flow of what I was meant to be filling in and listened to them came back and said, I feel so much better. And I was going, I haven't done anything, but it's because we're, we're removing a lot of the, the kind of limbically driven software, heavy changes, the central sensitization. If we we can start addressing that. So on my course, I give everyone permission to put their pen down and not write anything down in our legal system. The framework from a physio point of view, we're all terrified about not having things written down in our minimum data set, but it says an appropriate objective. It doesn't say what that is. And what you can very, very legally do is listen to someone for an hour, give them stuff to finish. And then in the next session, write down assessment continued Mm -hmm. where, where you get all of the rich objective data that we like. And that gives us, you know, I give loads of people questionnaires, as I've said, before they come into clinic with me. So they arrive with kind of 15 questionnaires and anything else they want to tell me, but you, you should be allowed to put your pen down. I find it's faster. So we had a six session limit in the NHS and, it was moving towards a three session limit. Um, and I found that I would get through treatment faster if I listened to people. Yeah. But again, so. just the, the listening and caring and truly mm-hmm. trying to understand what's going on and how it's affecting their life. You're, you're treating them already. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. And, yeah. and it's that, that kind of stuff that you just don't pick up on. So the, the patients that have taught me things are the ones where, you know, they, they stick in my mind and they're on the course. Um, I use them as obviously anonymized as, um, see, uh, as stories for people to richly <laughs> break apart and show how I got it wrong and what they would do better. Um, because they're the ones that stick with you when they've, when they've taught you things and the kind of people where I work with someone really hard for eight months, I hid her in my treatment program in the NHS because she had really poor body image and she had, um, she had pain, but it had no rhyme or reason to it. And it was, wasn't very centralized and it didn't make any sense to me. Um, and it was only after eight months of treatment that I really talked to her about her experience at home 
um, and she was being abused by her husband. Wow. And you just think, well, you know, that was a massive deal for me. I just thought, well, I've got to listen to people. I've got yeah. to stop talking and I've got to start listening more so yeah. that I am not di directing the treatment. They are saying, yeah, I'm happy to go here. or I don't want to do that, that they direct it because I would have got there much faster. And these days I do, you know, one yeah. or two sessions yeah. in, I'm getting there as opposed to eight months. Yeah. This is why you, you work. So where does the physical assessment treatment come into all that? Okay. So, um, again, everyone's on the spectrum, but from yeah. a physical assessment, I would want everyone to be looking superficially. Um, and you're looking about you, before you even touch someone, you're looking at their autonomic response. We call it autonomic consent, um, on my courses. Mm. So we look at whether or not they're happy with you being with, with you touching them. Um, if you Sorry, that's a, a really good, um, word terminology for it because people can say yes and then they lie yeah. down and you go to touch them you're not even near them and you can just see them cringing or curling in or almost crying or sometimes crying and you're like yeah. we do not have to do this yeah exactly we and are then, not going um, to do this the other tells that i mean if you're an acupuncturist this is the chi um but it's uh, erythema on the body and uh, sweaty palms you, yeah. you get good at judging it when you start feeling patients as in kind of loving them a little bit as opposed to just assessing them as, as people yeah. and bladders and they're actual humans. Um, at least every other course that I've taught, the, the person that offers to be assessed, I will say in front of people, I'm not going to assess this person. I've got, I, I stand there with my arms and my hands around their knee as my first um, pressure. It's part of therapeutic assessment that you, you say, I am here, I am present, I am not moving, I am safe. Um, not out loud, but with your hands, you can out loud if you want to. And at that point, if someone is wriggling away or um, has all of these signs, these autonomic signs, I'll look at them and I'll go, look, I'm, I'm, I know you're stood in front of 20 other physios that are watching you, but I'm not going to assess you today. Close their legs, close the curtain, shoo everyone else away and just say, look, I, I don't know what's going on. I don't think this is the forum that's appropriate, but you are not ready to be assessed. Um, let's talk about this later. And in, in clinic, that's really important because if you start assessing someone who is not ready for it, you're just going to perpetuate that limbically driven threat mm -hmm. response to your touch. And then physio becomes a bear. It becomes another attack to the system. So those are the patients that actually you may, you may choose to do some more brain work with and talking and, you know, all sorts of stuff comes up. Shame around periods, shame around feeling loose or big or in sex, sexual acts, lots of really interesting rich data around um their experience of their vagina and their vulva and you might want to explore that a little bit until they're a bit more comfortable and then you go back to doing a graded exposure to a an assessment mm. <laughs> so i'm going to move my hands a bit further down and then i'm going to stop okay and they say okay and you move your hands and you stop and then you say right how are you feeling now my hands are here and we're not going to move we're not going to do anything and i might use some um frontal lobe inhibition i know a lot of us do this we've got our hairdresser patter um mine tends to be what would you do with 178 million pounds it's a very specific number and it gets them thinking um and whatever they say i make a big deal of so there's one woman that sticks in my mind that said i'd buy an island and i said great what would you put on your island flamingos great and we just had hilarious chats every time <laughs> she then came in about we're going to do the flamingo assessment um but finding ways they to kind of cortically inhib inhibit fear um breathing techniques thinking about the safest place they've ever been the most comfortable warm friendly 
And then the standard physio assessment, so superficially um, having a look what's going on. We all know what should be happening, but if anything looks tight, not tight enough or red, um, then you want to be dealing with it. Um, and internally, um, with all patients, I would implore everyone to go a quarter speed that you would normally do. Um, I was recently on, I was on Sandy Hilton's course last year. And when you teach a lot, you don't get palpated very often. So it's quite a good thing um, to have a go at being palpated. And I had some lovely, lovely physios that I have um, uh, worked with for a long time, kind of doing the techniques, having a feel inside. Um, and I nearly jumped off the table <laughs> because they were kind of going left side, right side, checking for sister seal, checking for rectus seal, posterior, anterior, a little bit of a sweep round, feeling superficial muscles. I knew exactly what they were doing, but it was just so uncomfortable and horrible. <laughs> um, it was. And, and um, following that, Carl Monaghan, who's a lovely, um, uh, unnameable kind of, he's, he's got many different professional hats on. There's a masseuse and a massage specialist and a pelvic pain specialist who's wonderful he then assessed me and because he just works in pain he assessed me at the speed of a slug um and was saying was doing all kind of the therapeutic approach to assessment so i'm going to move to your right side now and then he would move really slowly and that meant all of my predictive soreness and discomfort and overactivity reduced um and i felt absolutely fine with that assessment so when you're assessing the pelvic floor you're not looking you're looking for objective changes. I would, you know, it, it doesn't take a genius to know that pretty much all of these patients are going to have an over, overactive hypertonic. I know we don't talk about tone, but that's the word everyone uses at the moment. Tension. Um, yeah, we're going to have more tension. We're going to have, especially if you're putting your finger inside, it's, it's going to be uncomfortable. So I don't know why we look for that if we know that that's going to be there. And I think maybe that's just a something from having, you know, I spent 80% of my day with pain patients. So I know it's going to be overactive. When I assess, I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for their experience autonomically, what they're saying, what they're able to tolerate, and if we can change that. And if you can change it in one session, even just by saying, okay, that was a seven out of 10, and I don't go anywhere that's more than a five or a six. If it's a five or a six, I leave it alone. Um, treat the other side because the pain isn't in the tissues. The pain is of the human. And if you go to the other side and do some contract relax, which is absolutely key in any autonomic neuropathy of the pelvic floor, we need to have contractile and relaxation um, within that muscle to help flush, to help change the set point on the nerves, lots of things. And if you do it very gently while having a chat, inhibiting, keeping them calm, discussing things, and then you're able to say, right, that, so on this side, it's feeling fine now. It's feeling boring. Great. Let's go back to this. Should we see what the other one was? So I'm going to move now to the other side, but I just want you to keep thinking about those flamingos. Um, bring your hand over to the other side and then you go and you stop and you just keep chatting about something. You stay absolutely still and then say to them, right, so how does this feel now? And they go, oh, 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 I didn't, I didn't realise. Are you where it hurt? And you go, yeah, I'm exactly on the spot that it hurt before. Okay, well, it's no longer a seven. What is it? Okay, if I push gently, what does it feel like? Oh, it's a two. Great, so we've changed it from a seven to a two. That gives them massive um, sense of achievement. And in any, in any assessment of the pelvic floor, never leave them without having achieved something. Hmm. There has to be some kind of positive achievement else. It's, I, it's almost abusive. I, I, I don't think anybody should be touching someone in pain if they aren't helping them. 
if we're just yeah. doing it for our own physio good going yes your pelvic floor is overactive we're not learning anything it's not it's not anything interesting we need to be creating change in that person and it may be that actually there are many patients that I get in and I think it's going to be fine. And then they're just climbing off the walls and I try and calm them down. And then I go, well, actually, let's just see if we can breathe through this. Can they tolerate a finger's presence? And if they can't, we work towards that. Um, but there has to be some kind of achievement. So that would be, yeah. But from a pelvic floor point of view, you need to be doing stuff regularly there to achieve change. But you have to be comfortably able to get in there. So it needs to be less than a five out of ten is my rule for me. Um, so that might involve doing lots of work, massaging around the pelvis. It might be that they need to go to the gym and squat. They need to do happy baby. They need to do yoga for 20 minutes and then palpate themselves, whatever it is to kind of reduce the, how angry their pelvis is. Hmm. And, and then we know, and it's not, and it, we talked about this in the last podcast. Didn't we we did. Yeah. Yeah. But okay. it's a good little tie. And again, like, I, you know, we, today we want to talk specifically about bladder pain syndrome. So knowing that this is still talking about bladder pain, but that it still really applies to anybody who's in pain. Yeah. 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 So yeah. Yeah. Um, so as a very quick recap, um, you, uh, evidence is vaguely a, a pretty good. Um, I mean, we've got seven RCTs um, and well, we've got eight, but I just count one of them because of the methodology. I don't think it's uh, useful. So we've got seven that show that if you are regularly in the pelvic floor for six weeks um, doing that kind of thing of contract, relax, gentle stretching, you achieve around about a 50% reduction in someone's bother scores. So how much their mm. symptoms are irritating them, but also you get a concurrent reduction in their urgency and frequency, which is the coolest thing. And I, So I how does that back. happen? Oh, it's amazing. So in your, um, your, your centrally driven, uh, there's two main, two main things. Um, these were my PhD questions and they got answered. Um, so at the conference in your kind of continence, um, area of your brain that manages your continence, we know, as I said, that the, the salience network, so the, the network of brain area that, um, deals with how much attention you pay to somewhere is very keyed in also with how much, um, how much your bladder, feels it is full what you're yeah. processing is is of um your proprioception of your bladder and your pelvic floor tension so the area that drives pelvic floor the area that drives kind of sensation around the bladder and the area that you decide how much attention you pay to your bladder with your brain become upregulated after six weeks to six months of continual pain so we can that network is um, is, a, is a continual circle and they each drive each other. So we don't have to touch the bladder to make the bladder better. That's why touching the um, pelvic floor improves bladder function because those networks are incredibly combined. Um, but we can also touch the limbic system and take their, net, you know, take their attention away from something. But also we know that viscerally, are, um, th there's a huge degree of visceral overflow of information. So if we can and the nerves to the bladder are shared with the nerves to the pelvic floor. They're very similarly from a, um, from a kind of spinal segmental level. Mm. So if we can do stuff to the segmental level that changes the experience and feels positive, then you will have a, a, an overflow deregulation on the kind of spinal level of central sensitization, which will help with the bladder, which is really cool. And that's why physio works. So with the, with the patients, we need to be doing about six weeks to get, and we should be looking somewhere up to about 50% reduction. That is with you, but it can be with them. 
Um, I did some work on wands and I'm not wand girl. Probably only 10% of my patients use a wand. Everyone else uses their thumbs. Yep. Um, but getting them working regularly with their pelvic floor, contracting it, relaxing it, not, not with the intention of making it less active. I think we, we get obsessed in pelvic floor about we need to stretch it. It's overactive. We need to make it relaxed. That is what you will achieve, but that's not the process. The process is, is the important thing. It's about being there regularly, feeling comfortable and desensitizing the area to touch, which is what achieves the change. Um, and six weeks is the limit, like the minimal. Um, 12 weeks is perfect. Some, some people went up to 20 weeks, but basically I get patients going with me once a week, probably for two or three weeks. And then by which point I'm introducing some form of self-touch or self-work yeah. Um, if they're able and just keep them going with it because it doesn't need to be us doing it um, I, I know it's the one thing we're really good at but it really doesn't need to be us if from a self-efficacy point of view we know it's so much more powerful if they're doing it to themselves yeah um, there's less threat wow so that's how pelvic floor not by releasing trigger mm -hmm. points no. um <laughs> <laughs> which I you think, you, well, we touched on it a little bit in the last podcast as well, but obviously it's still being talked about. You had um, made some comments about the conference that you were at, that it is actually still being taught or discussed as a form of treatment for bladder pain syndrome. Is that right? Yeah. And, and therefore also from a surgical point of view, trigger point um, injections, which I, when you know the anatomy of, of the of, of a, um, an area of tension and pain in the pelvic floor it makes no biological sense um, the problem we have is that in research well first of all we all the only thing that we know of each other's practice unless we spend time with different professions mm. is we read research yeah. and consultants and urologists who are very keen and passionate will read evidence about physio treatments because they're passionate and they want to get their patients better. And in research, it's much easier and much sexier to do something that has, um, is a reductionist um, view uh, to the degree where, you know, you've got something that you can pin your treatment on and then numbers that will increase or decrease because numbers are sexier than um, talking to someone about how they feel about their delivery 46 years ago and how much of an impact that's made on their life. That's not something you can really build a clinic on. Um, so our research in physio tends to be trigger point release, um, trigger point massage um, and biofeedback. So I get loads of patients referred to me for biofeedback and some of them are absolutely desperate and they've been shown by their consultant um, probes to put inside to do biofeedback. Um, and with some of them, I will gently suggest that biofeedback is a process that comes in many forms, including fingers, mm. dildos, um, vibrators, lots of other stuff. Um, but some of them, that's where they, they are absolutely you know, determined to start. And that's fine. Biofeedback, I would suggest, is quite a passive. I know they have to be active alongside it, but it's, it's not necessarily very active. And it can also be quite traumatizing um, because it's if they don't do well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's putting something inside where you hurt. Um, and I, I don't like that. I, I don't like dilators for that reason. I mm. think dilators, that area wasn't meant to kind of for you to lie back and relax as you shove something into it. Um, so 
the issue we have is that we we have very lovely evidence around trigger points but i think we wrote that at a time over the last 15 years and you know it really started kind of coming out probably 30 40 years ago but within the pelvic floor well she says um Thiel talked about it in 1937 and ely talked about it in 1910 um so it's been around for a long time but our understanding of what is happening underneath that process has changed and we don't have literature certainly that's getting into the hands of um, healthcare providers of different professions that talks about we don't think it's a hyper irritable bundle of muscle, muscle spindle fibers with um, a motor end plate attached we think it is you know those are normal we've all got them in our shoulders we've all got them in our hands by our thumbs where a muscle um, changes direction in force you need a perineum you need something to pull against that is what a an area of tension in a muscle is now, tension myalgia um, by Helena Forley was talked about, but I know she's discussed that tension may not be an element. Um, Carolyn Van Zyken talks about um, hyper oh, palpation hyperalgesia, which I quite like. It's a lot of words. Um, I tend to say this muscle's a bit sore. Let's see mm. if we can make it less sore. But certainly we need to not be hanging our treatment on a process which reduces the complexity and beautiful, um, you know, the artwork of the brain and what it's doing and processing in that area. And the more that we say there is a trigger point there, the more that my inbox fills up with patients saying, um, please tell me where my trigger points are so my surgeon can cut them out, uh, which is the reality, you know, and I, if I had read about trigger points causing pain, I would want someone to cut them out of me. Yeah. Um, we all know that's ridiculous and it, they will come back because muscles get tight, muscles get loose. Um, and we've all got trigger points all over us. They're not trigger points. Um, it's about desensitizing and it's a much more complex and beautiful process of uh, an autonomic neuropathy within that muscle when there is pelvic pain on palpation of those muscles. Um, and that, so, so talking about trigger points is just a, it's a hangover of language. And this is why I think words are incredibly important. And when what we need is lots of people writing new literature that gets into the hands of um, surgeons and consultants that lead our medicine, um, talking about different things that aren't reductionist. Because it disempowers patients. The minute that you say, oh, there's a trigger point here, I'm gonna get rid of your trigger points for you. A massage is lovely, you know, mm -hmm. it makes it feel lovely. Um, and then it comes back. What do they do when it's come back? Oh, I failed. I haven't done my release exercises well enough. I need my physio to get rid of my trigger points or um, the patients that are desperately using wands and emailing me and saying, you know, from Brazil or all over the world, um, I'm using the wand, but I still have pain. I can't get rid of my trigger points. I still have pain and tension in a muscle and pain are two very different things. You know, we, we, we know this ourselves that you can have an incredibly tense muscle and no pain. What we need to be dealing with is the pain experience. I mean, you stop telling patients that they've got monkeys in their pelvic floors that they need to get rid of. Good for business. Yeah, very, very good for business. But good for business. Maybe not extremely helpful. No. No. So by working on the muscles and working on, so the muscles are going to help with frequency, urgency, as well as pain. And when we talk about bladder pain, often, like you said, it's not just that their bladder's painful, there's usually other structures. Like you said, sometimes um, you're working on these muscles to help with the bladder pain, but they may also have sexual pain. Like there's usually a whole bunch of things that go with it. So that area can help with all of it, but the 
most important part is the person in front of you and how it affects their life and how it affects their, you know, emotional, not stability, but like how they're feeling and, and everything else. And so uh, the biggest part, like you were saying, of our treatment is really trying to address the person. Um, mm -hmm. Is there anything else specifically with regards to bladder pain that you really want people to know about? Um, we, it needs to be a team approach. So make some friend, make friends with your urologists. Um, the, the gag layer replacements, I'm the jury's out on, um, they're the installations they put into people's bladders. I'm not sure how they're meant to, I know the action of working, but I'm not sure if you're weighing it out within 20 minutes, half an hour, how much of an effect it has if you have to have it every six weeks, but there are treatments, um, from a tissue specific point of view that can help. And certainly I've been swayed to thinking that if someone has Hannah's positive cystoscopy, that actually having a laser ablation may help them. But um, I haven't come across any of my patients that it has. So I'm, I'm, I'm open to that. So get, get to know your urologist and see how they work. Um, get to know your, you know, sexologists, your, bio, um, your sexual, psychosexual therapists um, and the psychologists, because they're really, really useful. There are lots that we can do. Um, and I think the more that we can empower ourselves within our scope of practice to get more education on a psycho psychologically informed model of healthcare, the more that actually we're not just treating the bio. And it annoys me in physio when we just treat the bio. Because um, bladder pain is not, it, it, there is stuff going on at the bladder and there's stuff going on in the brain. And then there's a person built around that. Mm. That's what we need to be treating. Um, so get yourself psychologically informed, go, go do some kind of trauma informed um, treatment ideas. And there was something else in my mind. Have you written the book uh, GMI for the pelvis yet? <laughs> Have I written it? No. No. Okay. Um, and you haven't done the um, Noi flashcards for the pelvis or anything yet? No. Um, they are, uh, Katie, Katie Kelly is working on um, some phase one trials looking at what pictures are relevant to patients in with vulvodynia and with long-term pain, I think. Um, so she may be producing some relevant images um, based on her research, which would be really useful. I know Sandy's got photo cards to do with she the pelvis. Does, yeah. Which I are think lovely. she sells them and I think Fiona Rogers here in Australia was selling them. Oh, I'll have to double check that. Don't quote me on that, but you can check her website. They're really, really good. Um, they're good at setting goals. Um, we don't have resources up and running yet. There is more coming out all the time. Last year, I've had a lot of people that listen to the podcast saying, where's your course online? Um, I was just going to ask you that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm, I had a bad year. Um, lots of, unfortunately, difficult yeah. big things happened in my family. So um, it's been put back, but I am back on the road and I'm hoping early 2020, um, one course is definitely going to be up. The psychologically, um, uh, the kind of the software stuff about graded motor imagery and stuff in the pelvis. I try to put out loads as much as I can on YouTube. You um, have so much free stuff on there. Good, I'm glad. The more it, the merrier. There's there's a whole uh, playlist for BPS patients now as well. Yeah. So for uh, patients themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So really? the whole all about bladder pain syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a DIY treatment section, which is a bit more of a kind of standard. Um, constipation management you know that kind of stuff I try to put out as much as I can because the more voices saying the same thing the more that real evidence gets through um what else would I want people to know I I would say look reach out do more stuff there are so many different things to do in bladder pain um 
people tend to come on my course saying I see one or two bladder pain patients a year and I'd like to know how to do better with them and then I say to them look at the diagnostic criteria these are your patients with vulvodynia and some urgency these are the patients with dyspareunia um, that they can only have sex once they've had a wee and then it's incredibly painful for two days afterwards and they've got more frequency these are the chronic we haven't even talked about men but these are the you know this is what chronic prostatitis is it's nothing to do with the prostate it's a complex pelvic pain state and this is very similar in bladder pain um these are we these are all of our patients any pain patient that has a urological um symptom issue so anything to do with the bladder and pain we need to be looking holistically at these patients and it and it's a beautiful area i love it because my my days are never the same um and no two patient sessions are ever the same mm because they take you in all different directions. Um, Nicole Kazian has got a very good book, The IC Solution, um, which I like. Um, I read it, um, I found it, unfortunately, I found it kind of two or three years after I'd been teaching and I went, oh, we think exactly the same. Like she's, she's brilliant. Um, her book is really, really comprehensive in, uh, in telling patients the, the breadth of things that they can do. Um, so that's quite a nice place to start if you're really new and, and worried about the area. Um, but I would, I would say let's kind of, let's start with um, looking at how we put ourselves in clinic and taking away our egos in, right, what do I need to achieve this session? And take it much more back into a psychologically informed framework of going and saying, right, this patient sat in front of me. I'm going to, it's a very scary way to work, but you go into that room not knowing what you're going to do um, on that first assessment or second session. You know, we, we often do go in and say, how are you? And they go, oh, I've had a terrible week. And you end up just talking for half an hour. But go into that session ready to listen to what they're saying, how they're saying it and what their body is telling you and not, not necessarily gather all your objective data and let the patient tell you what they need. Um, and we don't pay enough due process to that, like due attention to that. Um, and that is the key in pain patients. Uh, it, the minute you can make a connection and make them feel heard and it doesn't take much in my NHS days I um, when I'd rotate to a new hospital um, they would all uh, laugh and put me next to the phone so whatever desk had the phone next to it because I gave patients the the phone number to the staff room because maybe three or four would ring a week um, but if they felt that I, try, I, I believed in them and I had so much invested in them, I was gonna give them my personal direct phone number, mm. um, it made them feel safer. Now I have email and every single patient I email, my emails are auditable and you know I put all of the emails onto my notes, but it means that patients can email me at one o'clock in the morning and say, I'm in loads of pain, I feel bad, I'm having a stress session and you know I'll get back to them. The minute that you provide support and it doesn't need to be much, you're gonna get much more of a, a deeper connection with that patient and you're going to drive change with them um, led by that patient quicker it mm. makes for quick treatment yeah and often just that quick simple return of an email just going okay you're okay you know don't worry about this 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 and then you get the email back and you're like oh i feel so much better now thanks i'm good now yeah yeah i just needed to tell someone is often yeah. what they're saying yeah and actually a lot a lot of treatment is that i just needed to tell someone um yeah and our job is to listen 